Well, good morning. Welcome to Battleground Community Church. If you're our guest, you're here for the parent-child dedication. You'll have to hold on just a little bit longer. We're going to do that during what we call our prayer focus time. If you've gathered here today, you to look around. You should have your Bible in front of you. Turn with me to John 17. You should have some sermon notes that are back there on the table. If you don't have those, you should be preparing yourself to take communion, for we do that every week. Every week as, as we respond at the end of the service in worship, we come to the tables to remember, to glorify our risen Lord, the one who lived and died and is coming again. I feel uniquely privileged this morning because I've always wanted to preach John 17. I have never had the opportunity to. So it's, it, it quickly, which was going to be two messages, it has quickly become three. It, it might be more. Um, we'll just have to see what the week holds. But this morning, we're looking at the beginning of this, our Lord's Prayer. And so let us stand in reverence of God's Word. Let, let you remind yourself this morning as we open up God's Word together that we do so with millions of our brothers and sisters around the world in various places and at various times of all that have been redeemed and gathered and who center their time of worship collectively around God's word. Let us hear from it. John 17 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you. Before the world existed. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have already thought and meditated on, we are here for the sake of your glory. To lift up the name of your son, the one who came and lived and died and rose again, ascended to the right hand of God and coming with power and authority to set up a kingdom that will be forever. And so now, Lord, as I ponder throughout history, there have been many a time where your people have come after a hard week, after times of suffering, yes, even martyrdom of their own families, and yet on the first day of the week, this resurrection day, we gather with our joy and our grief to celebrate the risen King today. This is why we are here, God. So may you be glorified in us during this time. And as we'll think about later, we long that you be glorified in our children. Make it so, God, through the power of your Spirit. And we all agree in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, as you remember, we are in what they would call the upper room discourse. And Jesus 
The cross is, if you would imagine a doorway, he's about to step into that doorway. And yet he tells his disciples, you're going to be sorrowful, but then you're going to experience joy. The joy comes through seeing. It comes through Christ's very presence. It will happen at the resurrection. And we challenged ourselves to think, what was the joy that was set before Jesus? And what is the joy that is set before you? That joy that's set before Jesus comes into view in this prayer. Truly, what we normally call the Lord's Prayer is just teaching disciples how to pray. But this prayer, this prayer, we get to hear the content of Jesus praying to His Father. You know, there's this chapter makes me think of meeting my wife. Uh, I'm, I'm not a music guy. I like music, but I play it on the radio, you know. But she was a music major in college, and it doesn't, didn't matter whether we were looking at the Roadrunner or Bugs Bunny or a Western or some kind of music, you know, movie about two, two people who fell in love. She always pointed out to me, did you, are you listening to the music? Do you hear the music? The music is telling you what's about to happen. And so you hear, all of a sudden, you're going to be watching a Western, and I'm hearing this music coming. Oh, no, something's about to happen. This is John 17. You can hear, as it were, the music, the crescendo of everything that John wants us to do is, is culminating, is building. You know something is about to happen when you read this prayer. There's a climax about to happen. He's about to walk through a door. I want you to see four things this morning just about this prayer. First, it's the content of this prayer. The prayer contains five petitions, one for himself and four for his people. James Montgomery Boyce points out this I thought was helpful, that there are also four marks of a healthy church in this prayer. There is joy, there is holiness, there is truth, there is mission, there is unity, and there is love. Not only that, we have in this prayer some of our core doctrines of our faith. We can see the doctrine of man in this prayer. We can see the doctrine of sin in this prayer. We can see the doctrine of the church in this prayer. We, get, we can get our Christology from this prayer. We see the triunity in this prayer. We, get, we see the doctrine of salvation in this prayer. We see in this prayer our story Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We see both redemption and consummation, our glorification in this prayer. There's also the nature. We all know, what is this prayer most of the time called? Somebody tell me. The high priestly prayer. As far as I could see in my study this week, that comes from one of our church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, in the 5th century who labeled this the high priestly prayer, and it has been seen as that ever since, because no matter what Jesus is about to go through, he is mostly in this prayer interceding for his people, both the disciples then and the disciples now. There is in this also a priestly sanctifying theme. We'll talk about that later. There is an attitude, and we've been seeing this attitude of Christ throughout John, the attitude of this prayer. 
Jesus is not the least concerned about the praise of men. He is concerned about the glory of God. So there is an attitude of glory. There is also an attitude of resolve. Tribulation is coming. Suffering is coming. And he knows it. And he has resolved to go through it for the glory of his Father. And think about this. No matter what he's about to go through, he spends these last moments interceding on behalf of his disciples. There is an attitude of glory, an attitude of resolve. There is an attitude of selflessness. I thought the location of this prayer is it's meaningful. There are people who believe he is still in the upper room. But look with me at John 14. John 14 and verse 31. Here we read this. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So at some point during the upper room time, they get up and they begin to go. Where are they headed? They're headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Many people think that he may have even been in the Kidron Valley here. You remember he's been talking about the vine, the branches. And Jesus is a good teacher, a whole lot better than any of us. He always used what was around him to illustrate what he was teaching. They're on the way to the very garden. By the way, what is he going to do in the garden? He's going to pray. What is he doing now? Pray. So he's on the way to the garden to be betrayed. If you got your notes, look at the top. Jesus' prayer to the Father centers on glory in his finished mission, a present protection for his disciples, and unity in truth for all those who believe. That's the, ma- that's the main idea for the next three weeks. We want to look this morning at the finished mission. Our key word is glory. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So have you ever wondered, is it, is it really okay to pray for ourselves? You, you, you're thinking, I hope so because I do an awful lot of it, right? <laughs> Jesus did. He it's his first petition. He's praying for himself. He, he desires his glory back. But he's not acting selfishly here. Because the completion of his mission and the Father's glory is in view the whole time. But let's be careful. For it would be a doctrinal error of worse degree to conclude that Jesus came and he laid down his deity. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity, nor his attributes. He gave up his divine prerogative of the glory that is due for who he is. He laid down his status. The honor that was due him. Paul says it this way, we know this. Verse Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though in the form of God did not count... Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the hour that has come. The hour has come, verse 1. This is not simply the hour that he had been preparing himself for his whole earthly life, and it has. This is our story. That there was a perfect creation in perfect relationship, and yet there was sin, and there was a fall. And there was to be a seed that would crush the head of the serpent. That's the hour that has come. The hour that all human history had been looking for. And without this hour, there is no hope for this, the world that we live in. But the hour has come. He's been pointing to this throughout the Gospel of John. Do you remember the wedding in Cana? John 2, 4. He says to his own mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If you flip over a couple pages to chapter 4 and verse 23, we see him talking to the woman at the well. And he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In John 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12 and verse 23, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in verse 27 of chapter 12, he said, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is the hour. This is the climax. This is why the music in our minds should be crescendoing. He stops at the doorway of the cross to pray. And he prays, glorify me. Micah's already helped us here through music and, and, and through his teaching that glory in the Bible is much like many other words in the Bible. Some of the most naive things are said by preachers. All means all. Sometimes all means all of a particular time of people. Sometimes it's all of Israel. Sometimes it's all of the world. Sometimes sanctify means one thing and sometimes it means something else depending on the context. of. The, sometimes glorify can mean one thing and sometimes it could mean another. Sometimes it could mean the value worthy of his name. Here. He is speaking of glorify. His petition of his heart means he longs to be clothed in splendor. That which he had had before the world existed. He longs to be glorified. But here's the problem. Here's the, here's the difficulty. You ever prayed something you said the only way it's going to happen is if a miracle happens. Jesus is about to be cursed. Friend, glorify me. He's about to be cursed. Deuteronomy 21, 23. A man that hangs on the tree is cursed by God. This is the problem. He's praying to be glorified, to be clothed in splendor when he's about to be clothed on a, with a cross. So to answer this prayer, God is going to have to take someone who has been cursed, been rejected, and been put to an open shame and turn it around. So that he is praised, he is honored, 
is celebrated. You see, if something is glorious, it must be seen and it must be celebrated. If Christ is the most glorious one, if this prayer is to be answered, he must be seen and he must be celebrated. And this we know he will do through the resurrection and the ascension and a promised return that all people will see him and celebrate him. So, I'm applying a little as I go today. Should we pray for our glory? Is, is that an okay prayer? Depends on your motivation, doesn't it? Is, is our glory, do we mean by that, is that Christ is seen and celebrated in our lives, in our ministries? Then please pray for that. But if your glory comes at the expense of God's glory, he's not going to answer that one. Our glory never comes at his expense. We will boast in the cross. So, notice what he says next. Glorify me. Verse 1. Look at it. So that I might glorify you. So that I might glorify you. That's his, that's his point G. Campbell Morgan says this, The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God, and then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. The chief aim of Christ's life and the chief aim of your life is to bring glory to your Father in heaven. That's why you are here. This is the unwasted life. How? How will the Father get glory? Well, verse 4 tells us. It says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This word accomplished literally means finished. It means perfected, to be made perfect. This work just needed to be done halfway. Jesus couldn't get just, just halfway through and say, you know, <laughs> it's tough. Many of us have done that in jobs and in relationships. This is hard. I'm going to quit. Notice the cross hadn't happened yet. It's not happened. Look at the way he's speaking. I have already accomplished it. In other words, I am resolved to go to that cross. There is nothing that's going to stop. This is so impactful for me in years gone by. You would do well to read men who you can barely understand that have died many years ago. It'll do you good, I promise you. You'll have to read them slow. Sometimes i got to get stronger glasses because the words, they write them in so tiny. But there was a Puritan named John Flavel. I think I'm getting his name right. He wrote about an imaginary conversation between the father and the son. This is called The Father's Bargain. He is trying to imagine as he reads things like we're reading today about this work of redemption that began even before the foundation of the world. He imagines the conversation goes something like this. The father speaking. My son. Remember, this is a Puritan. So listen, listen with your mind here. My father, here's a company of poor, miserable souls 
that have utterly undone themselves and now, now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? So imagine that, that he is looking at you before Christ. And what did your sin demand of God's justice? We are pitiful. We are ruined without Christ. And so the son responds. This is powerful. Oh, my father, such is my love too and my pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for their surety. So having all of us destined for hell because justice of God must be satisfied, Christ says, I will be responsible for them. Here's what he says next. Listen. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. What is this Puritan saying? He's saying that, that Christ agreed to die for you and for me. And what he said is, Father, bring in everything that they owe justice, and I will pay it all. I will pay it in the past, I will pay it in the present, and I will pay it in the future. That there may be never a day where God brings up your sin against you again. This is a conversation. I will rather, he continues, choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The father responds, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus persevered in his mission to redeem us because that's what brought the Father glory. This is glory in a finished mission that would give us something. And what he's going to give us is eternal life. So look with me at verses 2 and 3. We'll look at verse 2 first. It says, since you have given him authority. Now let me pause for a second. Jesus is speaking of himself. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This prayer centers on this idea of this giving of what he is calling eternal life. That this eternal life is going to affect a people. In John, eternal life is synonymous with salvation. You might open up another gospel and even Paul's writing and see salvation. Paul uses this term 
eternal life. There are three things given here. Notice there is a given authority. You see it? You have given him, you have given me authority over all flesh. Now, think with me about Flavel's illustration, his imaginary conversation. Jesus had the authority to stand in your place. This boggles the mind. Even those who spend their whole life studying it can get, barely get their hands around this truth that Jesus had the authority to stand as the covenant head of all of humanity. What Adam broke, Jesus would fix. He had the authority to do that. He had the authority, secondly, to give freely to those who believe. So he's got the authority. It's one thing to say, I'll give you something. It's another to actually have the authority to give it. You might be called into the boss's office and say, who are you to do that? You thought you could give something. You had no authority to give. Jesus has the authority to not only stand in our place, he has the authority to give what only God can give. That is, freedom from sin And freedom from future judgment. That's our problem. It's our family's problem. It's humanity's problem. Isn't that what John 3.16 says? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Notice there's two things. That whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have what? Eternal life. You see, he had to have the authority to give both. One to give, the other to take something away. If he did not have the authority to do that, we are still dead in our sins. That's why Paul said, if there is no resurrection, we are hopeless. But if there is, he has proven himself both able and willing to save to the uttermost those who believe. Leon Morris explains eternal life That it is not something that we achieve by our earnest endeavors, our good works, our devotional exercises, or the like. If we have eternal life, it will be because He has freely given us. But notice, verse 2, there's something else that's given. A people is given. Do you see it? Since you have given Him authority over All flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is nothing new. He's already told us about these people. Flip back with me to John chapter 6. These people are given by the Father to the Son. John 6, 37. I'm not interpreting the Bible. I'm reading it. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. You see how those are connected together? Who he gives me will come to me. And those who come to me will never be cast out. For I have come down to heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. 
but raise it up on the last day. Do you see the connection? Those he's given me, I will raise them up. This doctrine gets Paul so happy that you can almost see him dancing in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Notice this connecting phrase. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. There is a given People, he has the authority. These people have been given to him by the Father, and he will not lose them. He has the authority, do you see? To give these people eternal life. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is what we need. I want you to see this morning. This is important. Eternal life here is being focused on for us as a quality, not merely quantity. Eternal life is about a quality. Do you remember, your, we've all had that age when our metabolism was rather fast and we would go to the buffet, right? Thing costs me 10 bucks, I'm going to get everything I can out of that buffet. I, you, you get me anxious, you know, because you're worried that somebody's going to get the good white piece of chicken up on a buffet, and I don't know if there's enough up there. It's like, what is it, Grandma Hoyt's in Bessemer City. You know, you're watching to say, oh my goodness, somebody's going to go up there, and I'm going to get the dried out bread or something. You're just eating as quick as you can, and then you hopefully get to a point in your life where you would rather just go to a good restaurant and be served a quality meal. Eternal life is about quality. Not merely quantity. When we simply focus on the everlasting life, listen, we miss the everlasting one. Eternal life is about knowing the everlasting one now and forever. Forever comes when you know God. William Barclay, I know I'm writing, I'm quoting a lot of people this morning, but they had a lot of good things to say. Listen, this quote, I think it's on your paper, on the screen. It's important to think through. William Barclay, to possess eternal life, to enter into eternal life, is to experience here and now something of the splendor and the majesty and the joy and the peace and the holiness which are characteristic of the life of God. Eternal life is not some compartment that you, do, that you pull out on Sunday and sing about. It is not a card you put in your pocket so that you'll have it when you die. It is a new spiritual condition, as someone said. It is the life of God in the soul of man. Eternal life comes with new power, new motives, new purpose, new everything. The result of the new of this eternal life, is you can never be the same sinful person you once were. So what is eternal life? We see it right here in the text. It's knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. That's what it is. He writes 1 John 
to make sure we get this. In chapter 5, verse 11, he said, And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has this life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have this life. If you've never read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, I would put it on the short list of things that you should read. He says, Who are we made for? To know God. What is the aim that we should set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anyone else. Anything else. Knowledge of God. Paul says it this way. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, if you don't want want eternal life now, you need not expect it then. Because this is what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. Revelation 22, 3 says, The Lord will be our light and we will reign forever and ever. We will be with Him. Eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins the moment you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it changes everything. Not only about the next life, it changes something about this life. Glory in a finished mission to give eternal life To his people. And then. Look at verse 5. There's glory in a restoration. It says. And now Father glorify me in your presence. With the glory that I had with you. Before the world existed. This is important for us to understand. As humans. Before there was a creation. Before there was a universe. Before there was an Adam or an Eve, it was God, the triune God, that needed nothing. He existed in perfect glory and in perfect relationship. And this is what he longs to have. This is his petition, to be restored to the Father's side. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is what he longs for. And this is exactly the prayer that God answered. Philippians 2, 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So when John writes Revelation He speaks of someone whose prayer has been answered. Revelation 1 verse 7 said, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. And then Jesus speaks over over it, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
Jesus' prayer was answered. He is restored to the very right hand of the Father and is coming again in glory. Here's the question. Am I longing for future glory? Because what we long for then affects how we live for Christ now. Do I, here's what I'm really asking. Do I long to see and celebrate Jesus Christ? Now and forever. And if that's true, what is that going to look like? I love Romans 8. Romans 8.18 We know this, I think. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just like Jesus teaches us that he came and started a mission and he finished it. And when he finished it, he went home. So this is the promise for all those who believe. That when we finish the mission that God gives us, we will simply go home. And even what we experience then will not be compared to what it will be when Christ returns. It creates a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sin. There is no sickness. There is only God's glorified people in His presence. And so... It's what we're about to do. We've come to see and celebrate. That's why you've gathered here this morning. That's why we're going to scatter here in a minute. And so let us center ourselves for the next few minutes around the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's come to the tables, brothers and sisters. We practice open communion here, which means if you are a child of God, Come to the table. We have said we will do this until he comes. And when he comes, we'll do it with him in his very presence. So let us pray together and let us stand and worship together. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that has come and illumined your word to us today. And now, Lord, we long for an opportunity to respond, to celebrate with your people that which we have seen and that which we have heard. And so, Lord, our desire is that you be glorified in us through our lives as we worship you now and through our lives as we worship you when we leave. Be magnified, God, in us and through us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.